Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, I'm Sue from the Salverton Mind Room Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm recording another episode of our podcast called Psychological. And this is a kind of little podcast that we've created to try and contribute to a lot of the conversations people are having at the moment about child and adolescent development and well-being and learning. And just talking to researchers in the field about um, work that they've been doing that seems relevant to those conversations. So today's Psychological is with Louise Marriott who is uh, based at the School of Health Sciences at the University of Dundee, where she is a Baxter Fellow. And she's going to talk to me about a paper which is called Factors Associated with Adverse Childhood Experiences in Scottish Children, a Prospective Cohort Study. Hello, Louise. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Um, So... Why don't you start by telling me what you sort of discovered in this bit of research looking at adverse childhood experiences? So in this bit of research, we wanted um, to look at whether we could identify adverse childhood experiences in a current population of Scottish children. And um, we were looking at birth cohort data up to the age of eight. And we found that we could um, we could find a lot of these um, adverse childhood experiences within the data. And we found that actually around two thirds of children had experienced at least one adverse childhood experience, one ACE, by the age of eight years. So it's pretty high compared with a lot of the other studies that we've seen. And had experienced three or more ACEs. Uh, we also found that... Um, that that wasn't uniform across the population. So some children were more likely to experience ACEs than others. And there were a range of factors that were, that were associated with that. But one of the really key ones was about household income. So children who had the lowest incomes were about 10 or 11 times more likely to have experienced the highest levels of ACEs, so four or more ACEs, than children um, in more affluent groups. So a real disparity there. Wow, that's really very stark, isn't it? Those sorts of um, figures are really it is, yeah. quite shocking. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I maybe just for people listening, um, I should say that that you know, maybe the question I'm about to ask might produce some upsetting answers. So, there's just a little trigger warning for anyone who's listening. Um, but um, Louise, could you tell us a bit about what? what an adverse childhood experience is, you know, what, what constitutes an ACE according to the, the definitions that you used in your research? Yeah, so ACEs, this sort of phrase was coined in the late 90s um, by a group in the United States and they looked at data that was held by a health insurance company for adults and they looked at... Um, whether what the most common sort of adversities that those people were experiencing um, and they they came up with this this scale and we managed to um, look at seven out of the ten of these um, commonly used ACEs and they cover quite a range of things so they go from a sort of range um, of sexual emotional um, and physical abuse Um, they look at neglect um, but they also look at a range of other things. So they look at whether your parents 
um, had mental health problems or substance misuse problems, whether there was domestic violence in the household, um, or whether you had a parent in prison, um, but also whether your parents ever divorced or separated. So there's, there's quite a wide range of, um, of different sorts of ACEs. Uh, we managed to look at seven of those, as I say, the ones that we couldn't get um, a grasp of were there, there were no questions around emotional um, abuse or physical neglect um, within the data we were looking at. And there were a few instances where sexual abuse was mentioned, but actually they were, there were so few that we couldn't really do anything with those data. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know... A nice phenomenon, I suppose, to have so few examples. But um, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, tell me a bit more about the data that you were using. Was this one particular cohort study that you were working on? Yeah, so we were looking at the growing up in Scotland um, birth cohort um, and their mm-hmm. first birth cohort. So they now have two birth cohorts. These were children who were born in Scotland in 2004 to 2005. Um, There were about 5,000 of them in that first um, round of data collection, the first sweep, um, which was about 10% of children in that year. And it was was made to be a representative sample um, covering the um, the whole of Scotland. Um, And those children have been followed up for the first five years. Their families were interviewed every year. um, And then since then, um, it's been every couple of years. Um, And initially, that was um, asking um, primarily the mother um, or or another parent in the household about the child. Um, And then as the children have aged, they've started to be asked questions. But the data we were using, so we were using data up to the age of eight, and that was all parent-reported data. Mm-hmm. But you said interviews rather than questionnaires, was it? Because obviously, you know, the, the stuff that you're looking at is pretty sensitive information. And I can imagine parents might have some um, reluctance to share some of that kind of information. So, you know, an interview might get quite different responses than a questionnaire would. Yeah, you're right. And um, so the way that um, that the Growing Up in Scotland study, which is known as GUS, um, operates is that a lot of it is done um, by um, computer-assisted personal interviewing. So uh, an interviewer will go into the family's house um, in, in traditional times, obviously not COVID times, and um, and ask survey questions, but face-to-face, and the interviewer would input the results into the computer. But within that, because there are, as you say, some very sensitive questions, um, within um, every interview that's conducted, there's a series of self-completion questionnaires. So at that point in the interview, the interviewer hands over the computer to um, whichever parent um, or carer is completing the questionnaire that year and they then fill in um, the data themselves and a lot of the questions that we're looking at are in that self-completion section but also they weren't not all these questions weren't asked every year and that relationship gets built up with a family so often you have the same interviewer going back to the same family year after year and those relationships Mm -hmm. and that trust is really built up over time so for example the domestic violence questions weren't in until about sweep six I think so by that point there was a lot of trust there um, in in the study and in that relationship with the interviewer as well um, so you, I, th- I think you, you probably tend to get um, more honest answers and more open answers through that as well. 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so you've you've obviously flagged right at the beginning there the way in which um, kind of income uh, bracket was related to frequency of ACEs. Um, and so, you know, for this kind of research, I can imagine it's important to try and get um, a really good um, uh, population kind of representative sample in your cohort and to be able to capture various kind of potentially relevant um, demographic elements. And so I just wonder, you know, it's, it's something that we talk about a lot in research that we end up with very sort of middle class samples that tend to have, you know, more years of education, higher income tend to be, you know, white, limited range of ethnicities, that sort of thing. So is Gus quite a good cohort in that respect? Are you able to um, explore lots of dimensions in that cohort? So in the benefit of using um, this sort of birth cohort data, as opposed to a lot of the original ACE studies were looking back um, retrospectively from, from adulthood into childhood. So you, you, you lost a lot of that richness of the data about mm-hmm. children's circumstances. Um, you had a bit of data about where people had ended up, um, but you didn't know much about um, their demographic um, backgrounds. Um, and, and, studies like Gus do have a lot of that richness of the data, but they do also suffer from the same issues that many cohort studies um, suffer from. So they, the, the sample does have an over-representation of more affluent households, um, and despite um, the interviewer's best efforts, they tend to lose more children um, from the more deprived households as mm-hmm. the study goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to some extent, they are able to account for that in the weighting um, of the data and particularly that um, attrition, so losing people over time differentially, they can account for because they know so much about these families. Mm. It's more of an issue in that first um, sweep, um, but it is a bit more balanced in that first sweep as well because of the sampling. Um, mm. So, and um, yeah, I think that that's that's an issue in most cohort studies. In fact, the I think one of the few cohort studies where they've managed not to do that is the Dunedin cohort in New Zealand, and and that's because they go to the extent of sort of if you've moved to the UK, they will fly you back to New Zealand um, for you <laughs> to take part, and it's it's, uh, it's quite an amazing feat, but obviously a much smaller sample as well. Um, yeah. But most most cohort studies do suffer from from that sort of issue. Yeah, yeah. And so I suppose with this kind of effect, because as you say, you've got um, slightly underrepresentation of people in lower income brackets, for example, and then also, you know, um, likely higher attrition of people from those groups. So they're more mm-hmm. likely to drop out of the study. You know, obviously. Um, circumstances will be more challenging and so you know the sort of resources to stay um, up to date with the research team and to give the research team time will be Mm -hmm. more limited perhaps in those families Um, so so would that suggest that if anything the the estimates that you extract from the cohort would tend to be a bit of an underestimate of the prevalence of ACEs is that is yeah, that absolutely. Would, That's yeah. what we've concluded is that, yeah, yeah if, if anything, the true picture is likely to be worse yeah. Um, yeah. within within the Scottish population, yeah. which is, yeah. is really saying something, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and were you able then, because this is a, um, 
a longitudinal cohort, as you said, and so those children are being followed up. So were you able to look at the kind of um, consequences of those early adverse childhood experiences for the children as they grow up? Is that something you've looked at? So that's something we're moving on to do. Um, so we, we've just submitted another paper um, which is looking at adverse childhood experiences and actually looking at um, the, the positive childhood experiences along with that because a lot of the criticism around ACEs is it is such a deficit approach um, that we've been looking at what positive childhood experiences um, using various scales we can identify within the data as well. Um, and this is that the children obviously have now aged as well. So we're looking at both ACEs and um, PCEs, as they're called, positive childhood experiences, up to age 12. Um, so that's showing some differences um, over time as well. We've started to look at outcomes. That's part of a wider project looking at um, obesity. Um, and then there's a separate paper looking at um, predictors of pre-adolescent obesity as well. Um, and that is showing a relationship with um, ACEs, um, which doesn't seem to be um, accounted for by poverty or education or anything else that we've looked at um mm -hmm. so that there is there does seem to be um an additional separate effect um of aces on obesity um and we're hoping to go on to look at both um aces and pcs in relation um to psychological outcomes um in adolescence as well but that's a bit of work for the future at the moment <laughs> well we'll have to get you back on the podcast when you're ready to talk about that as well <laughs> so this might be a bit of a, a technical question and perhaps a bit hard to explain, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and I'm sure you'll you'll um, you'll kind of guide me through it. I, I'm just thinking about the fact that I would imagine that these kinds of adverse childhood experiences might quite often cluster together, right? So, um, for example, um, domestic violence, and I think you mentioned that a parent going to prison would also be classed as an ACE. And so you can imagine scenarios in which both of those things would um, uh, occur in the same family. So how do you go about sort of pulling apart the way that um, each individual adverse experience might have an impact, but also the way they might sort of cluster together in that way in a, in a particular family, um, in a particular situation? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question. The way that the ACEs have been um, sort of set up to operate um, is that actually it doesn't matter which ACEs you're looking at. Um, it, right. It's purely a summing of, of the ACEs. Um, and um, and so and there's said to be a magic number that if you reach four, um, then that's sort of predictive of the poorest outcomes in terms of a range of mm. physical and mental health outcomes. Um, but with, within that, it doesn't really matter which of those there are. But as you say, there are clusters. And that's something we've started trying to disentangle a little bit in um, our follow-up work. Um, and there certainly seem to be some sort of gateway factors so so yeah. some factors that if you have um if I, I and i think i'm right in saying that having a parent in prison is one of those that mm -hmm. if you have a parent in prison you are far more likely to have experienced other um adverse childhood experiences and i mm -hmm. think domestic violence was another one that you you are far more likely to have experienced 
um, other adversities as well. So um, we haven't we haven't particularly looked at clustering, but we've we've started started to look at those gateway um, variables mm. a little bit. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, which is is very interesting. There's far more of a spread when you look at the positive childhood experiences. They don't seem to be so so clustered or to have that sort of gateway approach. Yeah. So what give me some examples of some positive childhood experiences. What would be on the list there? Um so that's that's a good question. I should have looked at that paper before we chatted. <laughs> sorry, sorry. This is now drifting on a completely different study. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so the positive childhood experiences, and there's well, there's a range of different um, scales that um, that have been um, sort of explored. Um, they're less well developed than the ACEs approach, um, but um, they tend to look at um, things like whether a child has um, someone outside their family that they can go to um, to, to speak to that they trust. Um, where it, um, do they have at least one caregiver with whom they felt safe? Um, there's some that have um, feelings about belonging in school. Um, that's that's not something we've been able to explore in our data. Um, but there are, there are a range of approaches, and some of the scales that exist also take into account positive demographic factors. Um, mm. as well but it's a lot about the sort of physical and particularly emotional support that a child has access mm. to mm. Um, and that sort of attachment theory um, approach really about having one significant person in your life that you can rely on um, mm. seems to have been the thing that that has has had an impact when people have looked at outcomes the little bit mm. of research that's been mm. around that. It's so interesting, actually, hearing you. I'm glad I put you on the spot, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. deviating from the plan. But I think, um, you know, I suppose I was starting to feel a little bit worried that positive childhood experiences would just be the absence of adverse childhood experiences, you know, just a sort of reverse opposite. But actually, you can imagine that with those examples that you're giving, it would be possible to have experienced the number of adverse childhood experiences from that list and also simultaneously have had those positive ones, which I find very uplifting, you know, because I think it it makes me feel a greater sense of hope in terms of, you know, how we can um, work in the future to improve things for children. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that's exactly what we found is that, that an absence of one doesn't mean that there's going to be a presence of the other or vice versa, that a right. lot of children do seem to have both. Um, and what we need to do now is to move on to look at how they both separately affect um, outcomes. We found mm -hmm. that there, there wasn't a relationship, for example, between um, positive childhood experiences and pre-adolescent obesity. But mm -hmm. perhaps that we shouldn't expect that because the sort of the mechanism for that, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that there's a, a, a mechanism for that in sort of theore mm -hmm. in theoretical mm -hmm. background. But when you're looking at more psychological outcomes, mental health outcomes, then perhaps we are likely to see um, an, a separate impact of positive childhood experiences, but mm -hmm. we, will, we will have to wait to see. <laughs> and so what do you think is the kind of take home from this, you know, for, um, for the researchers of the future or maybe for practitioners, you know, how should we be 
um, taking account of adverse childhood experiences. You know, let's say in a in a teacher for a teacher in a primary school, for example. You know, what what would be your message for them? I mean, I think there's there's been a huge amount of um, raising awareness of ACEs among sort of teachers and the police and all sorts of different professions, um, which I think has been a real positive um, and sort of looking at the reasons behind children and adults' behaviours um, rather than looking just at the behaviours themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that plays out here. In the, the original um, ACE work, poverty and deprivation was very much brushed over um, because the feeling was that actually this was a relatively affluent group of adults they were talking to and yet they'd experienced lots of ACEs. And I think our paper shows that while that's true, there are ACEs, ACEs are found across the board, actually they are still concentrated amongst the children who are experiencing various other demographic adversities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's, we found that really important to, to keep in mind that actually there, there are still definitely some groups of children who need more support um, and who will be experiencing um, more adversity in their lives. And, and I think that's really important to, to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important. Um, so before we wrap up, thank you so much, Louise. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Um, we, I think, have various early career researchers and PhD students and so on who listen to the podcast. And I wondered if you had any pearls of wisdom that you would be able to share with them? I think this is probably the toughest question you've asked. (laughs) Um, I think um, I'd say for, um, I mean, one of the best things that I've done has been just applying for things that you possibly don't think you have a chance of, of getting on or perhaps seem a little bit off the wall. Um, so an example of this was that I applied, it was about this time of year, and I put in a very quick application to the, to the British Council Research, a link scheme between Iran and Scotland. And I ended up going to Iran, and that actually became my first um, piece of work that I was um, a PI on. Um, it was a very small bit of funding, but it developed out of that um, with this international team. And and I think things like that, you never quite know where they're going to lead. And it's similar, I'm doing the European Crucible at the moment um, and just being put in a room with people from vastly different backgrounds, but actually finding some really interesting connections and sparking different ideas of each other has been really great. Um, so I think I think that's a key thing. Um, the other thing I would say, and I think I got told this a lot, but I was never quite sure how to go about it, was um, to get a really good mentor. Um, and and I'd been trying to get a mentor for a while through sort of the university schemes and so on, and not having much luck, to be honest. Um, and then and then eventually someone someone at Edinburgh Uni actually um, came and and did a presentation and said just email people email people who you have who have the same values as you that is more important than being from the same subject background or the same um, or a particular level email people who have the same values as you um, in terms of in life in their work um, what is meaningful to you and ask them if they would mentor you. Um, and that's that's what I did, and I 
I've ended up with a really good mentoring experience from that, which has been just so helpful in terms of talking about different career directions and different options and different opportunities. Um, so that, that would be my other piece of advice, I think. Oh, fantastic advice, Louise. And I think that's so useful because you're right. We do often say, I say to people all the time, get yourself a mentor. But but you're right. It's not so clear how to go about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I definitely, I mean, I think these sort of, um, you know, um, blind date style schemes are very, you know, it's great that they exist and they're very well intentioned. But you're right. It's, it's a bit of a gamble. And, yeah. Um, and that value matching is a lovely way to think about it. I, I think that's really, really valuable advice. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, I think we should draw to a close because we do try. We, I keep saying that this podcast is bite-sized and then I just get too interested in what people say. <laughs> um, but it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you, Louise. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. That was fascinating. Um, for anyone who's listening, you'll be able to find out more about the work that we've talked about and about Louise by following the links in the podcast description in your podcast app or on our Buzzsprout page. Thank you so much, Louise. Bye. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly. <laughs>